Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. Each week, we sit with those defying traditional finance and legacy institutions, the biggest brains and biggest names, and also those making a quieter but profound impact, the founders, investors, and creators of decentralized finance and Web3. You'll hear from them right here and get the scoop on how they're building at the frontier. I'm your host, Defiant founder, Camila Russo, putting this new world within your reach. Justin, welcome to the Defiant Podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. This week on the Defiant Podcast, we speak with Justin Drake. Justin is a researcher for the Ethereum Foundation. He's at the forefront of the biggest change to happen in Ethereum's history, the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, also known as the merge, a major engineering feat for what's the most active blockchain in crypto. So how exactly will the merge work and why does it matter? The merge is a protocol upgrade to the to the to the Ethereum blockchain, and it is a the removal of proof of work for proof of stake. One thing that makes it very unique is that there's two chains that are being merged into one. Hence the name, the, the merge. The way that we usually do upgrades is that we have a single chain where we decide on a certain block height, and at that block height, we we move from an old set of rules to the upgraded set of rules. Now, the reason why we have this this second chain, which is really unprecedented, is because we wanted to really test this proof of stake before having all the activity on Ethereum be secured by it. So about a year and a half ago, in December 2020, we launched a proof of stake chain. And during this time, we've been able to do several things. One is that we've been able to you know, observe the chain and make sure it's running properly. And it has been very smooth for the last year and a half. We've always also been able to fix a bunch of implementation bugs. So we have this bug bounty program and people report bugs to us, which are, which are fixed. Another very important thing that we've been able to do during this time is to improve so-called client diversity. So the way that the, the proof of stake upgrade is, is kind of organized is that there is a spec, which is a Python spec, which is meant to be very readable, but not at all optimized for a production-grade client. And there's clients, client teams all over the world that are implementing this spec. And the, the reason why we want client diversity is partly to mitigate against against bugs. So it's a it's a huge upgrade which a lot with a lot of new complexity and if one of the clients or maybe two of the clients have bugs that's not necessarily a systemic risk for Ethereum. And there are five different proof of stake clients and now we're in a position where no single client has more than 50% of the stake. And the final thing which is very important that has happened during the, this one year and a half is that the economic security, which is the total amount of ETH staked, has grown tremendously from, from basically zero ETH at the very beginning, all the way to 13 million ETH today, which is roughly $15 billion. And the, re- the, the reason why I call it economic security, it's the amount of US dollars an attacker would have as a, would need as a budget to go attack this chain. So to perform a 51% attack, it would be the equivalent on, on proof of work to buy enough uh, proof of work with the mining rigs, connect them to the grid and, and go attack uh, Ethereum. 
And now, basically, one and a half years in, we're confident that you know this this new chain, which we call the the beacon chain, is secure enough to to secure the the Ethereum transactions and and state. And so, in a few months, we will be in a position where we can completely remove the the, the proof of work component and all the transactions which are currently being secured by proof of work will then be secured by proof of stake. Very cool. So why is this important? Like I understand, you know, from what you say, just like the huge complexity of this happening and, and just uh, how careful you guys uh, are being in, in having kind of run this chain for a year and a half to make sure, you know, there's no bugs and client diversity and, and make sure there's enough ETH staked on this chain to secure it and so on. So, but why is it so important to change from proof of work to proof of stake? Right. So the upgrade kind of gives us two things. One is on the topic of security and the other one is on the topic of efficiency. So let's go through security first. One thing that I mentioned is economic security, which is the amount of money that an attacker would need to perform a 51% attack. And right now to go attack Ethereum, you need on the order of, let's say, five to $10 billion. And with the transition to proof of stake, this is going to grow to $15 billion. And it has a lot of room to grow well beyond that as more ETH is going to be staked um, and as maybe the price of ETH goes up. Another big security upgrade is this notion of penalties. So in proof of work, you can only reward the miners. It's very difficult to, to penalize them. And the, the, the reason is that you know, there's basically no way to either retract rewards that we've already given them or destroy their, their economic security, which is the mining rigs. It's very difficult to, 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 to do that. Whereas with proof of stake, we're in a we have a, a setup where every unit of stake is identified under a so-called pub key and the stake can be, can be re reduced or completely removed. And one of the upsides for this is that if there is a 51% attack, then the chain can recover. So in the context of proof of work, if someone can 51% attack for a small period of time, they can 51% attack essentially indefinitely. Whereas with proof of stake, we have a healing mechanism where the chain can basically identify the attackers and remove them from the system. And in the process of doing so, actually in, in, increase the scarcity of, of, of Ether, the asset, because some Ether has been, has been destroyed. And one of the, the, the cool properties of, of this healing mechanism is that we can actually put a, a bound on the number of times a chain can be attacked. So if there's, for example, 10 million ETH, which is honest and staking, then in order to perform an attack, you need at least another 10 million ETH. And when you do perform the attack, you're going to lose that 10 million ETH. And so if there's only 120 million ETH out there, then an, at an attack can only be performed 11 times. So that's on the topic of, of security, like these two very big upgrades. And this is important because the end goal for Ethereum is to become the settlement layer for the, for the internet. And so really we want to have, you know, ideally trillions of dollars of economic security and have a platform where people have enough trust to go build infrastructure on top of it. The, the second big upgrade is in terms of efficiency. So one is power usage efficiency. Right now, Ethereum uses between 
0.1% and 0.3% of all the electricity produced in, in the world. Um, and after the move to proof of stake, that's essentially going to, to, to almost zero. It's roughly speaking a, a 10,000 X reduction in the, in the electric, electricity consumption. The other big efficiency improvement is how is related to issuance. So issuance is ether that's created out of thin air to go fund and subsidize the security of the chain and incentivize consensus participants to show up. Now, one of the things you can look at is how much issuance do you need per unit of economic security? And it turns out that proof of stake needs roughly 30 times less issuance per unit of security than proof of work. So there's this 30x increase in efficiency, which means that we can have drastically less issuance. And to give you concrete numbers, right now, proof of work issues 13.5 thousand ETH every single day. And at the point of the merge, we're going to be issuing roughly 1,600. So it's roughly an 8x reduction in issuance. Hence the name that is is given to it, which is the, the triple halvening, because three halvenings, three Bitcoin halvenings is roughly a, a reduction of 8x in issuance, which is what Ethereum will, will enjoy in, in, a, in, in a single moment, as opposed to having to wait 12 years in the, in the case of Bitcoin. Wow. Is this because of what you mentioned before, that there is this added kind of security measure of taking away of like punishing validators? Is that why kind of you, you need less issuance? So it's, it, it's slightly different. The reason why we need less issuance is because in an open and competitive market, the, 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 the profits kind of tend to, tend to zero. Now, in, in order for the, 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 the profits to tend to zero, we, we kind of need the income to match the, the expenses, the, the costs for consensus participants. Now let's compare the costs of proof of work versus the cost of proof of stake. In the context of proof of work, you need to buy mining rigs and you need to pay for electricity. These are huge costs for every unit of, of economic security. Whereas in the context of proof of, of stake, you have basically what's called opportunity cost, which is the, the cost of money, you know, which might be on the order of, of, of 3%, let's say. And in the context of, of proof of work, what we've seen empirically is that for, for every $1 of economic security, you need to issue $1 every single year and 100% issuance to, 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 to cover the cost is much, much lower than 3% per year of, of the total economic security. Got it. So interesting. Is, is decentralization also part of kind of, you know, what changes or, or, or why kind of proof of stake is, is meaningful? Because, you know, the way I, I understand it now, hopefully the barriers of entry to becoming a node operator are a lot lower. Like you said before, you as a miner, proof of work miner, you have to put up like all this infrastructure and, you know, have all this these expenses. But now, you know, with proof of stake, you can just, you know, all you need is capital. You need 32 ETH to stake and, and that's pretty much it. So do you think that increases Ethereum's decentralization because you have more people who are able to become node operators? Right. So the barrier to entry to becoming a consensus participant is 
definitely reduced, and, and that could lead to more decentralization. So, for example, I was not previously, and I'm currently not a a proof of work contents participant, but I am a proof of stake participant, and I can do that, you know, from 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 my from my home, you know, on on a very you know low powered computer. Now, you know, there's different flavors of proof of stake, and there's different ways to 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 build proof of stake. I think Ethereum distinguishes itself in the sense that it supports many many validators. So Ethereum today has over four hundred thousand validators. Whereas other proof of stake mechanisms might only have hundreds or maybe a few thousand validators. And so having this capacity to have many validators is kind of one of the requirements for the barrier to entry to, to be so low. One of the things that I, I, I do want to highlight is that it's not necessarily sufficient to have a low barrier to, to, to entry for, for, for validators. Like the, one of the things that we've, we've seen empirically is that a significant amount of the ETH that is staked is done actually through pools that could be in the context of exchanges or Lido. And so one of the things that, that I think needs to be done is to educate, do more education, first of all, to highlight how easy it is or it ca- could be to, to be a solo validator, but also to highlight a lot of the risks that come with, with delegating and, and, and going through a pool. Risks around, around you know, slashing and correlated failures, as well as you know, uh, social slashing, right? If 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 these operators start misbehaving, then it's possible that, that there could be a, a, a case for the community to come together and 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 slash that stake. There's also the possibility of an inside jobs, where you know your your not your keys, not your coins, basically, and and various other risks which you, you don't have to bear when you're a solo validator. So now that we understand exactly what the merge is. We dive into Justin's story. He's been in crypto since the very early days and went from trying to build on Bitcoin to becoming one of the leading Ethereum researchers. Beyond Justin's story, we go into what the next steps are before the merge happens. Last week, Tim Bako, a fellow researcher, suggested the change would happen in September. I wanted to let you know about A16C's new podcast called Web3 with A16C. We're excited to recommend what is sure to become one of the best podcasts for understanding and going deeper on crypto and Web3. It's hosted by Sonal Choksi, former showrunner and longtime host of the A16C podcast, along with frequent guest appearances and hosting by Chris Dixon. This new show is really about building the next generation of the internet. You can listen to Web3 with A16C today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to follow it now. Yeah, sure. So I've always kind of been quite geeky. And in my teenage years, I was fascinated with mathematics and eventually went on to study mathematics at at, at university. When I came out of university, I started doing programming. And around 2013, I discovered Bitcoin, as you said, and went down the rabbit hole and became obsessed with it. I, I started the Cambridge Bitcoin meetup group where, where I live in the UK. I operated a, a Bitcoin ATM. I started a coin startup, which was building on top of a peer-to-peer marketplace, decentralized peer-to-peer marketplace called Open Bazaar. And then eventually in 2017, I, I joined the Ethereum Foundation basically to, to work on what used to be called Ethereum 2.0, which is a, a series of upgrades, which include the move to proof of stake, but also include other, other features like, 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 sh- like sharding. 
Uh, and when I joined in 2017, there were very few people doing research at the Ethereum Foundation on, on, on this topic. I was expecting, you know, for a, a protocol which was, you know, tens of billions of dollars large to have a, a whole team dedicated to this and be very professional. But it was a very ragtag team and it was a very, very small and the fact that it was so small kind of meant that there was opportunity to have very, very high impact during the early days of Ethereum. And yeah, now we're in a position where we've done a lot of hiring, we've, we've, we're much more professional. You know, it's a much larger team on the order of 25 people. 25 people is still, you know, quite small, but I think this is one of the things that we've uh, we, we've learned in the blockchain space is that small teams can have a, a huge impact. You know, you can look at the the Uniswap success story. You can look at Ethereum research and even the 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 implementers. So there's five proof of stake clients, and there's also four so-called execution clients. So basically, clients that will execute Ethereum transactions, clients like Geff, for example. And all these teams combined, these nine teams, is maybe you know less than a hundred people, and they also have a, a, a massive impact. Yeah. Sorry, just curious. How how small was the team back in 2017? Like, how many of you were there? <laughs> it was about five people, something like wow. that. Wow. <laughs> uh, and okay. Oh. Why, why did you decide to go from, you know, being like such a, just like so deep in the Bitcoin ecosystem, like with a Bitcoin startup and running a Bitcoin ATM, and then just like went full on Ethereum? Yeah, sure. So as, as a kind of a, a startup building on top of Open Bazaar, I got to observe the Open Bazaar team, which at the time when I, when I started, they were kind of Bitcoin maxis and they were trying to do everything on Bitcoin. And I could see that they were really shoehorning everything into Bitcoin. So there was this, this identity system built on top of Bitcoin. There was this escrow mechanism built on top of Bitcoin. And there was just so painful for the Open Bazaar team to, to and, and like, I could just see that you know this was not the right approach. Back then, Ethereum was very, very nascent. It didn't have much credibility. I was trying to push them to move towards Ethereum, but they were they were pretty resistant. And so, what happened is that I kind of had Ethereum as my side hobby, but you know my my day job was effectively building on top of Bitcoin. And as time grew on and on, I became more and more interested with, in Ethereum and more and more frustrated with, with, with Bitcoin. And when, when my startup ran out of money in 2017, I, I decided I'm going to you know, take some time off and, and focus on, on, on something, you know, on my hobby, which was, which was Ethereum. And I watched a talk by Vitalik discussing the data availability problem. And I spent a few weeks thinking about that. I had kind of have this, this new potentially promising di direction to, to solve the problem and e emailed Vitalik. We had this, 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 this conversation. And a few weeks later, he, he offered me to join the research team. Oh, amazing. Very cool. Okay. And then back to, you know, years later, here you are, you know, in the middle of I, about to execute this huge change. So what are the, the steps now uh, until, un, until the merge? And then, and then after, if you can walk us through that, like I understand so far, you know, in the past couple of months, all the like Ethereum test nets have executed or, or most except one, right? I think there's like one test net still missing. So yeah, if you can guide me through kind of what's missing for the merge to happen and then 
when it does, like exactly like how, how will it happen? Right. So we're kind of at the, the end of the, the quality assurance process. So as you said, we've gone through many different types of test nets, you know, some dev nets, some so-called shadow forks, as well as some of the, the persistent test nets. The, the last persistent testnet that we are going to merge is called Gurley. And what we're, what we're hoping to do is for that to be kind of the, the, the final big rehearsal. And we're hoping for the client's code base to be at that point frozen so that the difference between the, 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 the Gurley code base and the, and the mainnet code base is as little as possible so that we reduce, so that we reduce risk. And Hopefully, the 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 the, the girly uh, merge should happen around you know in a few weeks around early August maybe, but that's going to be decided during the the Oracle Devs call and the the next Oracle Devs call is is this Friday in in, in a couple of days. In terms of you know this this long tail of curators a test suite which is called the, the the Hive test suite, and you know there's. Over a hundred tests that various teams need, need, need to pass, and you know maybe on average each team is missing about is failing about you know ten or fifteen tests. So there's still a little bit of work there to to, to polish everything up. But once once this has happened, I think we'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll be in a in a, in a position to have this this frozen code base for Gurley. Now, in terms of once we've decided everything's ready. How do we actually merge on, on mainnet? So there's there's two things that need to to happen. One is that we need to hard fork the beacon chain, and that hard fork is called Bellatrix. And we also need to hard fork the current EVM chain, and that's going to be called Paris. Now, once these two chains have been hard forked, they will be kind of merge ready, and so they will be pending some sort of trigger in order to actually perform the merge. And uh, the trigger is, is rather unusual. Usually the trigger, as I mentioned earlier, is that you have a certain block height, and at that block height, you trigger the upgrade. But for, for various technical reasons, we've decided to use the so-called total difficulty. So total difficulty is the sum of the difficulty of every single block. And so this is a number that keeps on increasing, increasing, increasing. And then we're going to, to have what's called a terminal total difficulty. So some threshold after which once the total dif difficulty goes above this threshold, that's when the two chains will merge. Why, why, do, why does a, you said the beacon chain and the, the current Ethereum chain uh, need to be forked? Why do they need to be forked in, in order to merge? Right. So the, 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 the reason is that they both need to be aware of the notion of a merge and they both need to be looking at the other chain and kind of doing this dance and then at some point kind of kissing. Uh, that's when the, <laughs> the, the merge happens. Okay, so the problem is that right now, these two, two chains are not aware that of each other and that a merge needs to happen. So that kind of piece of code Need to be implemented, and that's why that they, they're both they they will both be hard forked to include that change. Okay, oh, that's so interesting. Okay, and then they're both hard forked. This kind of difficulty is reached, this threshold is crossed, and and then what happens? Like, 
like just like practically how are our two separate block like networks joined so practically what will happen is that there will be a very last ethereum block which will be secured by proof of work and then the next one will be secured by proof of stake and from the perspective of users and that developers almost nothing will change like one of the bigger changes is that the block times will change so right now block times is kind of this this randomized process with proof of work and it averages around 13 seconds per, per block with the with proof of stake we have these fixed duration 12 second slots and so we'll have much more predictability and regularity in in the production of in the production of blocks and that could also mean that the merge will give us a very very small scalability boost because we'll have roughly 10% more blocks than we than we than we had but one of the common misconceptions around the merge is that it gives us you know a huge scalability boost but that's not at all the case so what happens with like the old chains Arguably, the, the most important part of Ethereum is the EVM state and you know, the EVM, which processes transactions. This is where all the economic activity lies. This is where all the network effects are. And this is really preserved and kind of maintained throughout the, the, the merge process. And so, as I said, from the point of view as, as a user, nothing changes. And this is one of the, the big reasons why the, the merge took a long time is because we we really wanted to be as to be the least disruptive as possible for users and, and preserve everything. The only change really is behind behind uh, behind the curtains or under the hood where we're kind of changing the engines. And actually, the this engine metaphor might be a good one. So if you imagine a, a, a car which is running, it started off with having a single engine, maybe a combustion engine, which is a proof of work security engine. And then at some point in, in the past, while the car was running, we kind of put in a second engine, which you can think of as an electric engine. But this second engine was not connected to the wheels. So during a year and a half, uh, we tested this electric engine. We made sure it was working properly. And then at the point of the merge, we're basically shutting off the, the engine, the combustion engine, and we're removing it and we're connecting the wheels to the electric engine, all while the car is still running. And so from the perspective of the driver, you, you shouldn't really observe any, any real differences. I love that metaphor. Is there a chance that, okay, you, you remove the combustion engine, like the proof of, take, proof of work chain is you know, thrown away. Is there a chance that, you know, kind of like it happened with the, the Dow fork, that you know, like proof of work miners just keep that chain alive. And there's like another kind of Ethereum classic situation. Right. So one thing I do want to highlight is that the, the past doesn't change. So the, we are still preserving the history of the proof of work chain. It's just that the future of it goes away. Now, it, you know, as with any fork, anyone can permissionly, permissionlessly kind of extend both sides of the fork. And it's quite likely that there will be someone, at least one person in the world, trying to extend the chain. What I expect will happen is that there will be almost no economic activity on the proof-of-work chain because there's a very, very strong social buy-in uh, for moving to, to, to proof-of-stake. And there's also reasons why having these, these, these contentious hard forks 
where both sides of the fork survive is no longer really viable in, in, in our day and age. And the, the reason is to a large extent because of, of DeFi and because of wrapped assets like USDC or USDT or wrapped Bitcoin. So in the context of these wrapped assets, they need to choose one of the chains, which is the canonical chain, or even for, for DAI. And this, this choice is a forcing function for one of the sides to be preserved and have a healthy DeFi and the other side of the fork to basically have a, a, a DeFi ecosystem which will completely collapse, where you know, everything will be liquidated and it will be total chaos for a period of time. And then after this period of time, everything has to be rebuilt from scratch. So you're not really preserving the network effects of Ethereum today if you're going to be building on top of the on the proof of work chain. So interesting. I can't wait to see it play out. Like, you know, like who knows what will happen to kind of the the old chain and the DeFi ecosystem there. And I don't know, just like kind of like like pretty surreal. This like other side kind of situation. And so like ETH itself, like the asset will remain the same and functional in the new proof of stake chain, right? Or like there won't be two ETH tokens or like how, how does that work? Yeah, that's correct. There's, there's, there's only one ETH token and it will work th the same as before. I mean, one major difference is the production of new ETH, the issuance is going to dramatically go down by roughly 8x. I guess a, a, another thing I maybe worth highlighting is that ETH, the, the ETH supply will live in two places. So there's going to be the balances within the EVM, but there's also balances within the beacon chain. And so there's these two containers that each hold ETH. Right now, there's about 107 million ETH on the EVM and 13 million ETH on, on, on the beacon chain. And one of the things that I expect is that there's going to be kind of a, a rush of ETH from the EVM to the beacon chain shortly after the merge. And that's for a couple of reasons. Like one is that if we can merge successfully, then a lot of the execution risk around the merge will have disappeared. And so some people that were kind of on the fence to, to, to stake because of, of the, the risk that maybe proof of stake will never, will never happen and withdrawals won't be enabled, that risk kind of goes, goes away to a large extent. And the other big reason is that after the merge, all the transaction fees that currently accrue to the miners, so that includes the, the tips, the, the portion of transaction fees which is not burnt, as well as the MEV, kind of this extra revenue for the consensus participants when it comes to ordering the transactions, all of that will go to the validators and the rewards for the validators will roughly double. Right now, it's on the order of, let's say, 4.5%, and that should roughly double to around 9% after the merge. And so because there's going to be this very big incentive for people to, to, to stake, we're going to see this migration of ETH from, from one container to another container. Interesting. And so when you talk about ETH in the EVM chain, are you talking about, does that include like ETH locked in like DeFi, like ETH in smart contracts, is that? Yeah, all the ETH. So if you take the sum of all the balances on the EVM, that will give you roughly 107 million ETH. 
Okay. Okay. So what you're saying is that investors will have a, a bigger incentive to um, to deposit that ETH on on kind of the base layer and stake it instead of keeping it uh, earning yield in, in in DeFi because yeah they're 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 that risk will have uh, disappeared. So now it'll be worth it for investors to to change that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another consequence is that the the yield on ETH in the context of DeFi should roughly match the yield that you get on the proof of stake chain. And you know, one of the reasons here is that if you could borrow some ETH you know, at a rate which is significantly lower than what you can get on the on the beacon chain, then you know people will borrow the ETH in DeFi and then stake it and then make a, a, a net return because they're paying less than what they're receiving as rewards on the beacon chain. Right. So that that should kind of that difference should like arbitrage away so that it's it's roughly equal. And so that speaking about kind of issuance and and yield and stake and all of that, I'd love for for you to talk about this concept of ultrasound money which I believe you you came up with and then kind of the bankless guys amplified. Can you can you go into what what you mean with that exactly? Sure. So actually Vitalik came up with the concept, but he called it something slightly different. He called it supersonic money. And I only came up with the term ultrasound money. And basically the it kind of started as a, as a joke, making fun of, of Bitcoiners and, and gold bugs, where you know they they believe that gold and Bitcoin is is sound money because it it can't be artificially debased through issuance, and they're very proud of their cap supply, right? There's a there's a finite amount of gold in the Earth crust, and there's going to be a finite amount of 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 Bitcoin which is going to 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 be issued, and Ethereum is in the a very unique position for in the context of money because after the merge the amount of ETH that is being burnt through transaction fees for this this mechanism called EIP-1559 is actually greater than the amount of ETH that is being issued on the the beacon chain. And historically speaking, since the fee burn was activated, we've burnt 7,500 ETH every single day. And so when you compare that to an issuance of 1,600 ETH, you know, it's pretty clear that the the supply will start going down. And so what will happen is that at the point of the merge, the the supply, the ETH supply will peak around 120 million ETH, and then it will start going down and find a new equilibrium, you know, maybe around 100 million ETH or 80 million ETH, 60 million ETH. This depends on various economic factors. But the 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 reason why it's kind of called ultrasound money is because is kind of trying to, to to one up to kind of distinguish itself from other monies, and there's this some somewhat competitive and zero sum dynamic in the context of money because money the is w- w- what is the money right? Money is is an asset with monetary premium, and what is monetary premium is kind of this social agreement, this illusion that you know as a society we, we've decided to endow this asset with value beyond you know above and beyond the intrinsic value the utilitarian value and so maybe one good example here is it is gold so gold has intrinsic utilitarian value because gold is being used you know in iPhones and all sorts of electronics it has this industrial use case but if you try and 
model you know, what should be the fair value of gold for its industrial use cases, you come up to roughly a market cap of $1 trillion. But gold actually has a market cap around $12 trillion. So where does this extra $11 trillion come from? It comes from people using gold as money, kind of taking it and locking it underground in, in, in vaults and having this, this, this artificial scarcification of the asset and this societal belief that it should have this monetary premium. And the, the, the fact that IFA will have this unique supply curve where it, it, it peaked and then the supply goes down is a distinguishing factor for it to gain monetary premium. But there's other distinguishing, interesting distinguishing factors. One could be, for example, economic security. Right after the merge, Ethereum will be the most secure blockchain on Earth, and the reason is that the amount of economic security of Bitcoin today, which is the most secure blockchain, is on the order of ten billion dollars, and post merge we'll have fifteen billion dollars of economic security. And so these these things combine, you know, the most security, the the best scarcity, kind of mean that it is possible that Ether will distinguish itself as a monetary asset and could become the, the, the money for the internet of value. Very cool. When you say Ethereum is the most secure chain, is that measured by what the amount of money that's needed to do a 51% attack? Exactly. So, and that term is called economic security. Moving from proof of work to proof of stake, naturally will shift the running of Ethereum. But how does it affect its users once the final tests are complete? Is it really as simple as swapping an engine out of a car? We talk about what happens with the old proof-of-work engine and what the risks for users are. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google Flights. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? To make sure you're getting the best possible price, you should use a DEX aggregator like Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Avalanche, BSC, Phantom, Celo, and Optimism to provide the best possible prices without taking any commissions. Matcha also has integrated fiat on-ramps, so you can buy directly with your credit or debit card and uses smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources. And that's one of the reasons why we're moving away from this ETH 1.0 and ETH 2.0 terminology, because it kind of suggests that these are different systems, potentially with different tokens, potentially starting from scratch. But actually, it's one you know, unified Ethereum. And so that's why we're actually calling these, these, these two layers of the stack the consensus layer, so that's the proof of stake, and the execution layer. So the execution layer, which, as you said, contains all the NFTs, all the DeFi, all the investments that people have made, this is untouched. And the, the only thing that's changing is the Ethereum consensus layer. And then, you know, whatever is happening on kind of the, the old proof of work chain, if people kind of want to keep running it, that'll be like its own separate universe that won't affect what's going on on the new chain. Exactly, right. It could be called, you know, Ethereum proof of work or something like that. Right. So what are the risks? I mean, the, the, there has to be huge risks here. Like what, what are kind of the, the, the things that uh, keep you up at night or kind of are, are 
are still scary about all this. Right. So w- one of the risks is called execution risk around the, 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 the clients. And that basically there's a lot of code, which is pretty fresh and it has very little so-called Lindy, right? It hasn't lived for a long time. It hasn't secured a, a lot of a lot of economic activity. And so it hasn't really been battle tested. And so our strategy to hedging against this execution risk is to have client diversity. And if you go to clientdiversity.org, you will be able to see, you know, all the, the, the share of the, various, of the various clients. And we're in a position where client diversity is very strong. One of the things that would be really, really bad is if there is a single client which has more than 66% of all the ETH uh, staked and they have a bug because that would lead to a so-called finalized checkpoint, which includes this bug, which finalizes this, this bad chain. And that would require some sort of manual intervention to to fix that, you know, it involves a social layer, which would be extremely messy. So instead, you know, we want to make sure that no single client has more than 66% of all the ETH staked so that this scenario doesn't, doesn't happen. And actually there's various so-called in-protocol thresholds where things could become bad if a single client has more than this, this threshold. So 66% is enough to have finality one half, you know, 51% is enough to control the fork choice rule. So what does that mean? It means that if a single client has more than 50% of the the stake and they have a bug, then history could be rewritten. The recent history could be rewritten because they would have the dominant chain, everyone would follow them, and then they would kind of suddenly roll back to the last finalized checkpoint and then would start rebuilding with a correct chain. So the good news here is that it doesn't require any manual intervention. It's kind of an automatic process. But the bad news is that there is this potentially fairly deep reorg that could happen and that could lead to some double spends or some chaos on, on, on DeFi. And then the, the next kind of less bad threshold is one third. And one of the things that can happen if you have a bug with a client with at least one third of the, the, the stake is that you, you disrupt finality. So we have this finality gadget, which requires <clears throat> at least two thirds of the validators to be online. And so if one of the bugs, sorry, if one of the clients has this liveness bug, meaning that um, all the validators go offline at the same point in time, then the finality gadget stops progressing. But that's not too bad because in the grand scheme of things, the finality gadget is one of the improvements over proof of proof of work. Proof of work has no concept of st- you know, strong economic finality. The chain can always reorg. You know, people talk about the six confirmations because it's very rare that reorgs of depth six c- could happen. But in theory, they could they could happen. Whereas with with Ethereum proof of stake, we have this notion of economic finality, which means that if we have two inconsistent finalized blocks, then we have kind of the mathematical guarantee that at least one third of the validators will get slashed. So it's a very strong economic guarantee. And so if it were to happen today on the beacon chain, at least 4 million ETH would get slashed, which makes it rather unlikely that it will happen. So right now, do any of the clients meet these thresholds? No. So I think we're in a position where the dominant client, Prism, was 
just over 66%. So it was, we were in a very precarious position. And now that has improved down to 40%. Yeah. Okay. So they're all below the, the 51 and the 66 thresholds were, which were the, the more kind of dangerous ones. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Okay, so these kind of risk around clients and how much ETH they're holding, that's something to watch. Is there you know, anything else that you're concerned about? Yes. So there's also potential design issues. So it's just possible that you know, proof of stake was not well designed. And one of the, the known vulnerabilities, which I'm somewhat worried about, is around the fact that every block proposer on the beacon chain is known in advance. So what an attacker can do is that they can observe the, the peer-to-peer network, the, the gossip layer, and associate an IP address to every single validator. And so when it's the turn of a validator to propose a block, they can DDoS this IP address and basically prevent a beacon block, an Ethereum block from being produced. And so that could lead to you know, somewhat severe disruptions on, 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 on the Ethereum chain. The other thing which is kind of slightly worrisome is that it could be in the economic best interest for some validators to go DDoS other validators, their fellow validators. And the reason is because of this, this MEV and these transaction fees that I was talking about. So consider this scenario, for example, where you're a validator in, a, in slot N and in the previous slot, slot n minus one, you you know the the validator and you go DDoS them. So they don't the validator just before you doesn't produce a block. That means that all the transaction fees that they would have received instead go to you, which is which which is bad. The good news here is that there's some short-term fixes that validators can apply. So they can have you know a somewhat fancy networking setups. And we're expecting all the big staking pools to have that. And maybe some of the, the, the home validators to, to also have that eventually if attacks do happen. And then there's a more permanent kind of fix to the whole problem, which is so-called secret leader election. So secret leader election is a, a way to sample for the next block proposers in such a way that anyone observing the chain can't see who will be the next proposers. The next proposers only reveal themselves when they've made a block. and Whoever has won the lottery, whoever will be the next proposer, can know when when they are the next proposer. Is this something that would need to happen in kind of another upgrade in the future? Because it, it seems like that would be kind of the, the longer term fix that you'd want, right? So that would be an upgrade. That would be a hard fork. And that might happen, I don't know, one to two years after the merge. But if there are you know, real attacks on, 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 on home validators, especially, which are the, the, the most vulnerable, and then we could try and expedite that. Mm. And so going back to the, the, the topic that we were discussing earlier in the conversation about ETH being concentrated in these pools, you know, like Lido is, is the biggest one. And, and there's, you know, there was a lot of concern early on about Coinbase and like other centralized exchanges concentrating a lot of stake ETH as well. So how does that risk play into all of this? Right. So one piece of good news is that the, 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 the system, even if it has malicious actors, is extremely robust. So one example, as I mentioned, is if 
you know, an attacker takes over one of these large pools and uses it to attack Ethereum, then if they try to rewrite history, right, if they try to have these two inconsistent finalized points, that will lead to, to mass slashing. And that will lead to basically this, this, this one-time attack being, basically Ethereum being able to heal from this, 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 this one-time attack. There's another, so that's what's called a safety attack. And we're kind of very well hedged against those with this automatic slashing mechanism. There's another type of attack that someone can try and do which is uh, called a liveness attack. And basically it boils down to censorship. So if, for example, you know, Coinbase has, has more than 50% of the stake and they decide that you know, we're, we don't want certain transactions to go through, we're going to censor some types of transactions. And then because they control the fork choice rule, they can actually go ahead and, and censor these, these transactions. You know, very similar to proof of work. If you have more than 51% of the the hash rate, you can censor tra- tra- transactions. Now, the good news is that with proof of stake, unlike with proof of work, the social layer has the ability to identify the censorship and to go slash Coinbase. But this is a much more expensive process because it involves the social layer. And so there's a lot of, of governance and coordination that w- would need to happen in order to, to re- remediate this, this, this censorship. Another thing that I, I, I do want to highlight as well is not just the actual security properties of the chain around safety and liveness, but it's also around the perceived safety and and, and liveness of of the chain. And this is important when it comes to to ETH, you know, trying to become, you know, ultrasound money. It's important for it to be, you know, maximally credibly neutral. And at the end of the day, money is all about memes, right? It's all, it's, you know, you could say it's kind of a, a, a confidence game, and and the fact that Lido has has such a share kind of gives it this this perceived centralization and this perceived weakness, even though in practice the firm chain can defend itself, even if there is an attack that happens. Has uh, so many interesting concepts here. I want to ask you about. So, okay, on kind of the the fallback of the social layer deciding to slash these, you know, centralized attackers. Would that mean that anyone who deposited ETH or, you know, delegated ETH on Lido or on or on Coinbase, they would they would lose their funds too, right? Right. So it turns out that the, the governance layer has a a whole suite of things that they could do. Like the most extreme thing that they could do is slash 100% of the funds. And as you said, you know, all the Coinbase users would lose their funds. And actually that's one of the risks of staking with Coinbase is that, you know, Coinbase kind of goes crazy or, or gets co-opted by regulators and then, you know, gets eventually gets, gets slashed. But there, there is a, a spectrum. One of the, 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 the least damaging things that could happen is so-called a forced ejection. So you can identify the ETH that is staking and you can eject them from the beacon chain, from the validators and put them back in the EVM. And then what you could even do is you could say, you know, we're going to have a timeout of one year. You know, we're going to take this ETH which has been misbehaving and we're going to freeze them for one year. That's possible. I mean, maybe you could also say, we're going to freeze it for one year and we're going to slash 10% of it. And if you do it a second time, then we'll slash 100%. So there's a whole kind of spectrum of things that, 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 that could be done. One of the things that I'm, I've been you know, thinking about is what are the most credibly neutral things that you could do? What are the shelling points 
you know, slashing 100% is a, is a natural shelling point because it's very simple. Ejecting is also very, very simple. The, the fact that, you know, there's a time parameter or there's a, a decision to be made around how long are we going to freeze these assets if we do eject and not slash and how much do we slash, you know, that could lead to a lot of coordination overhead because people suddenly need to agree on these parameters. So my, my two preferred options would be first, forcefully eject. You know, that's kind of the, the least disruptive thing, which is still credibly neutral. And then if there is a second attack, then slash 100% of all the ETH. Yeah, that does sound, you know, pretty, pretty fair. And at least kind of prevents people losing their, their money uh, immediately. Right, because it gives people the option to withdraw from Coinbase when they realize, hey, the community really is not happy with this behavior and we're, we, we're actually happy to go ahead and, and perform action at the show's layer. Right. And then the second follow-up question that I have on that is, you know, on, on this kind of social layer deciding to bad actors, that can kind of go either way to it. It seems like a double-edged sword. It seems like, sure, like maybe the social layer can work towards kind of the common good, but what if, you know, the social layer, which is, it sounds pretty ambiguous. I don't know. Is it kind of like, Ethereum all core devs, just, you know, just uh, people kind of participating in like calls and governance and polls and stuff like that. Like, it's just like pretty kind of soft and, and mushy, I guess the, the definition can, can that like one day just like turn against the rest of Ethereum participants and, 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 and work against kind of the, the majority or like, can can it become like a, a a source of censorship itself? Right. So one thing that I'll mention is that anytime the social governance intervenes, there's now suddenly a fork, right? So there's these two chains. And now the social layer, you know, the, the actual users or the investors or whatever it is, they can choose one of the chains. So you always have optionality. The other thing that I, I want to highlight is that the... I think the best case scenario is that the social layer is never actually used. And so this is, might be a little similar to the, the the powers of the queen, for example, in the UK. Like she has these discretionary powers. I don't know exactly what they are, but maybe she could, you know, dilute the 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 the, the parliament or something. But, you know, in, in theory, she has those rights, but she will never use them, you know, in, in practice. And I think it's, it's a similar thing where it's kind of a, a deterrent. The fact that it exists is fantastic, but it's not actually meant to be used. And this is somewhat similar to optimistic rollups, which is a little bit of a, a, a tangent here, but basically the way that optimistic rollups work is that you make these claims about the state of a, of a chain called a rollup, and you have a, a bond whereby a piece of collateral, whereby if you make an invalid claim, then you lose your collateral and there's a dispute process for, for to challenge these, these these bad claims, and so there is the, the the game theory would suggest that you know we would never see these invalid claims. It makes no rational sense for people to go do that, and the fact that there is this dispute me mechanism is where the value lies, not in the actual usage of that dispute resolution process, which should you know in theory never be used. So now we've been educated on the short-term future of Ethereum. In this last section of the interview, we get into the long-term roadmap. 
For years, scalability has been the main source of frustration for users on Ethereum. However, as detailed, there will only be marginal improvements in scalability after the merge. Actual scalability will come from elsewhere. So what's a plan that will lead Ethereum to become the financial layer of the internet? To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get OneInch on your phone now or swap on OneInch.io. Okay, so what is the scalability story? So it starts today with a chain which is extremely non-scalable and it can process on the order of 10 transactions a second. Now, we want to be in a position where Ethereum can settle the internet of value, where every person on Earth can make, let's say, 100 transactions every single day. And that would require on the order of 10 million transactions a second. So we somehow need to grow a million X the throughput. It seems like an unsurmountable problem, but it turns out we can do it. And it's, you know, maybe, a, 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 you know, at least philosophically, a, a similar scaling story to the internet, you know, where back in, you know, 20 years ago, it was maybe difficult to download a video or even an image. And nowadays we have this instant video chat. So at a, at a high level, there's three 100x tech scaling technologies that compound on each other. The first 100x is, is rollups. So that will bring us from 10 transactions a second to 1,000 transactions a second. And the idea here is that we are only going to use Ethereum to settle the data of the transactions, not to basically agree on the, not to perform execution. Instead, the execution will happen off-chain, either with optimistic rollups and kind of these challenge games if there's, in, if there's bad claims, or using very fancy mathematics called snarks, basically, which are these succinct mathematical proofs that you can give the chain that all the execution that happened off-chain is actually valid. And it turns out that today, people are paying you know, 1% of the gas cost for data and 99% of the gas cost for execution. And so when you remove this 99%, gas cost for execution, you get a 100x uh, scalability boost with, with rollups. Now, the, the second 100x improvement is sharding. And the, the idea here is to provide more data for the rollups to go consume, because that's what they consume, and to grow that by roughly a, a factor of 100x. And the idea here is that every... Right now, we're in a position where every consensus participant does this redundant work of downloading all the data, you know, the whole Ethereum blocks, before they, before they can sign off on them and say, yeah, this is a valid Ethereum block. So there's this, instead, there's this you know, clever mechanism where every validator only has to download a very small portion of the block. And so that allows us to have much larger blocks, you know, roughly on the order of 100 times larger blocks from a, from a data perspective. And so that means that rollups can have 100x more throughput. And so that brings us from 1,000 transactions a second with rollups to 100,000 transactions per second. 
Now, what is the, the final 100x technology? Well, it turns out that we kind of get it for free almost. And it's the, 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 basically the, the equivalent of Moore's law, but for bandwidth. So the, 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 kind of the, the, the empirical observation is that consumer bandwidth improves roughly 50% every single year. And so if you compound that over, let's say, you know, 10 years or 12 years, that brings us to another 100x. Now, why do I highlight bandwidth? The reason is that if you take kind of a, a fundamentals approach to the scalability of blockchains, there's various computational resources that are at play. You know, there's execution, like CPU cycles. There's storage. There's so-called disk IO, which is how fast you write and you read to disk, which is currently the bottleneck on Ethereum. And you have bandwidth. It turns out that the very first three can be removed with fancy technology, specifically with technology called statelessness, where basically clients no longer have to store the state and no longer have to read and write to it. So you remove storage as a, as a bottleneck and you remove disk IO as a bottleneck. And you can also remove execution as a bottleneck with these snarks, where basically you do all the execution off-chain with potentially very powerful computers. And then there's very constrained environment, the consensus participants don't have to, to do that execution. And so you're left with the fundamental bottleneck for, 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 for consensus, which is bandwidth. And the, the amazing thing is that bandwidth just keeps on growing every single year. And one of the reasons why there's, we expect bandwidth to continue kind of growing exponentially, potentially for decades to come, is that bandwidth is a fundamentally paralyzable thing. There's, there's no sequential operations involved. And, you know, even a, a single strand of fiber, you know, which is the width of, of a hair, can, 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 can transport petabits, you know, per, per, per second. So that, that there's, there's a lot of room for, for, for scaling bandwidth, even, even with, with fiber, which is what, what the world is moving towards. Okay. So does that mean that first we'll, we'll rely on, on roll-ups for a while? For Ethereum scalability, and that's uh, that's 100x improvement. Yes, that's correct. So there's kind of a, a naive way to do rollups, which gives us a 10x, and then there's these fancy data compression mechanisms, which bring us all the way to 100x. And you know, right now I don't know where we are exactly, but we're maybe at at 20x. So there's there's a little bit more room with with the rollups. And in terms of the sharding, there's kind of this two-step process. One is called proto-dank sharding, which will give us some relief relatively soon. And then there will be the full dank sharding, which will bring us the full 100x. What's that dank, dank sharding? Yeah, dank sharding. So sharding... I haven't heard of that term. <laughs> let, yeah, sure. So let, let me explain. So the way that we used to have this increase in data on Ethereum is through the, these parallel shards asynchronous parallel shards, kind of these different universes. And that led to, you know, potentially quite a bit of complexity for DAP developers because now you have, you know, various gas markets and you have to build these bridges and it becomes a little complicated. Dank sharding is this idea that we have the benefits of sharding without DAP developers realizing that there is sharding. So from from on the front end, as a, as a consumer of data, it's all one unified blob of data. But in the back end, the validators will be downloading small chunks of this very big block of data. Oh, wow. That's, that's a huge step forward. 
because that was that i mean from what i remember that used to be kind of like the, the biggest drawback of sharding that it was kind of these separate mini blockchains on ethereum and it was just like very hard to have this you know composable DeFi ecosystem that we have today but now you're saying that there's a way to solve that so that there there can be sharding and you know you don't have to worry about kind of building on different kind of mini blockchains Exactly. And the inventor of Dank Sharding is Dankrat, who's one of the research at the Ethereum Foundation, hence the name. Nice. <laughs> wow. Good job to him. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Okay. When, when should we expect sharding? So Dank Sharding you know, might take, let's say, two, three years. But proto-Dank Sharding, uh, which is called EIP4484, I believe, and there's even a whole website dedicated to it. And it's something that the various rollups, for example, Optimism is, is pushing for because that, that can really help rollup scale. This is something that is you know, significantly simpler than proto-Dank Sharding and you know, might happen, let's say, maybe one or two years after the merge. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So we'll, we'll rely on rollups until, you know, for one or two years, then we'll have proto dank sharding. Then we'll have dank sharding. I don't know, in the next, who knows, five years or so. And, and then together with, with broadband, then Ethereum will be able to scale like fully to support, you know, the internet like to become the, the execution layer of the internet and become ultrasound money. So that's the big picture. Exactly. And there, there are network effects to so-called shared security, right? So there's various models for scaling, right? There's the, the Cosmos model, for example, where you have this, this fractured security across many different sovereign chains. You know, you have the Polkadot model where you have these parachains all under shared security and, you know, you have the, the Ethereum model. And one of the things that we're, we're seeing convergence around is, is shared security. You know, even Cosmos, who were kind of the, the big believers in this fractured security, are moving towards shared security with something called Celestia. And it turns out that there's these, these network effects associated with it, because if you have two chains with shared security, that means you, you basically have a trustless bridging, for example, as one, one of the, the big massive benefits. And so that means that if you have a chain which is the most economic secure secu with the most economic security and it can simultaneously scale to settle the whole internet of value, then it will settle most of the internet of value. It's kind of this winner take most. And so you know the the big bull case I guess for for Ethereum is that yes indeed it can preserve its lead in economic security and simultaneously scale to, to 10 million transactions a second. Are you are you worried that in in this time, you know, between Ethereum, you know, going to proof of stake, then relying on on rollups gradually increasing scalability, and then, you know, in, in a few years adding sharding, that, you know, there's a risk of all these other uh, competitor layer one chains uh, trying to, you know, or, or starting to take market share away from Ethereum as it's, you know, already arguably happening to some extent with a, a lot of TVL in, in DeFi going over to, to other layer ones. Yeah, you're right. That, that has happened. That has been spilled over to, to other chains. The good news is that we've, we've, the, a lot of the rollups are actually live today. So, Arbitrum, Optimism, you know, even you know, rollups like Starknet have been live. And what, what we've observed is that there's been 
fairly slow transition you know, from Ethereum L1 to Ethereum L2. And this goes to show kind of the, the power of network effects. You know, even though you get significantly lower transaction fees in a rollup, people still prefer the, 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 the base layer. And the reason is because they're next to all their friends and all the interesting activities happening there. And so really the, the challenge that we need to solve is how do we find a way to migrate network effects from one place to, to, to another? And what these other alternative chains have done is that they've had incentive programs. And so what we've seen basically is that you know, one chain, I don't know, I'll pick on Avalanche, for example, has some sort of incentive program. And then there's a huge you know, transition of, of TVL to that chain. And then as soon as they stop the incentive program, all the liquidity flies back to, to, to Ethereum. And so what I think needs to happen is for some of these chains to introduce a new token and have you know, a very clever incentive program so that all the activity migrates, all the TVL migrates, and for the, 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 the users, the Ethereum users, to feel at home, right? Not feel like they're on some sort of alien land and then have to come back to Ethereum. And we've, we've had StockNet announce a token today, I think, and we've had the Optimism token being announced. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that at least one of the rollups will, will be able to crack that. Great. Yeah, I, I think, you know, th there's, I think, incentives for sure. I also think there's like a lot of work to do with like UX. It's just like very painful, I think, to cross over to, to rollups and, you know, layer twos in general at the moment. And yeah, just like having liquidity there, having kind of all your, you know, dApps and assets there will be huge. So we'll see how that progresses. But yeah. Really, I think like the the current users are sophisticated enough to be able to to bridge onto you know from L one to to a rollup. But all the new users, you know, they they're not going to go through this friction. It's just too complicated. And so, what we what we basically need is for exchanges, which is the the onboarding place for any anyone really, to have direct withdrawals into a rollup. And we're seeing various exchanges do that. And as soon that, as that becomes the default option, which it will be because the transaction fees will be so much lower and all the network effects will be in these rollups, then you know, we can really have the next wave of, of users come, and come, come to Ethereum. Right. It's like this chicken and egg situation where maybe you know, application developers are still on Ethereum mainnet because users are there. But now, you know, if, if you're right, if like centralized exchanges just make it easier to bypass Ethereum mainnet entirely and go directly to rollups, then that'll be a, a big incentive for developers to go there too. So yeah, that'll be... I, I think that that'll be kind of one of the, the interesting kind of trends to watch in the next few few months. So we're way over time because this has been fascinating. Really kind of, it, it's been so great diving deep into the merge and Ethereum. It's been really great. I, I really want to ask you one more question because, you know, uh, this, is, this is something that I ask all my guests. And so, Justin, what makes you defiant? Uh, what makes me defiant? Hmm. I guess, you know, I'm relentlessly optimistic. And so, you know, sometimes that makes me naive, but, you know, in, in a way that <laughs> defiant, I'm kind of defying reality. You know, I guess people talk about Steve Jobs having this, this reality distortion field. And, uh, you know, 
I, I, I really think big, you know, I, I think that in 10, 20 years, Ethereum will be the de-settlement value, you know, layer for, for the internet of value. It will be an extension of, 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 of the internet. And, and right now it, it's very difficult to, to, to think that, you know, and going back to this ultrasound money meme, you know, Ethereum could become a hundred trillion dollar asset, you know, which sounds completely crazy today, you know, it'll have to grow 300 X, but it's, I think it is a, a, a definite possible future for, for Ether to become the, the internet of value. Sorry, the, the money for the internet of value. Awesome. I love that big vision. And I, and I don't think it's, it's so far-fetched to think that, well, it is what I think as well. I, I think kind of crypto and blockchains will become just the underlying infrastructure for finance and for all industries. I mean, they'll, they'll become one additional protocol layer on top of the internet. And so if you believe that this is a winner take most market and that Ethereum has a big chance to, to be that winner, then, you know, it's not so far-fetched. The question is like, will Ethereum retain its lead? And so you're here kind of making sure that that happens. So it's it's been an absolute pleasure chatting, Justin. Thank you so much for taking the time again. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Podcast. Together, we are taking hold of the world of DeFi and Web3 with the most influential voices in the space. Don't forget to subscribe to all our channels, our newsletter, YouTube, social media accounts, and of course, this podcast. See you next week.